The New Testament reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 20. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I hand it on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Caiaphas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we gather once again this morning to celebrate the wonder and joy of the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means for our, for our lives and for your world. And we pray now that as we come to sit here and to reflect on your scriptures, that you would be with us and that your spirit would be among us and that you would be opening our minds, enlightening us, in the knowledge of Christ, that you would be drawing us to yourself, that we might love you and one another more deeply, and that you might be transforming us by your word and work of power in our midst, that we may become more like Jesus and more fully participating in the resurrection life that you have begun in him. So meet us, we ask, in our time, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this morning, uh, as we continue to celebrate uh, our Easter celebration of Jesus's resurrection, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series that we're calling The Resurrection Church, which is going to be based on select passages like these from the Gospels and from the New Testament letters from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to churches in that first generation congregations that were working out in real time uh, what it might look like for them to live out this story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it might look like for them to actually follow their crucified and risen living Messiah, Jesus, into the world. And so there are two main reasons that we're doing this sermon series on the resurrection church this season. One is just simply, it's Easter. It's Easter time, and we always focus on resurrection in one shape or form or another. During this time, we find fresh ways to reflect on the significance of resurrection for our lives this time of year. But the second reason is that we are about to begin as a church using our new name. Our newly merged church is about to start going by the name that we as a church have chosen for ourselves, and that name is resurrection. So it just seemed fitting in this Easter season that we would spend some time reflecting on what it might look like for us as a community to grow up into our new name and to, into our identity and calling as resurrection church in this city. So that's the question that we're going to sit with for about the next six weeks or so is what does it mean to be the resurrection church? Or to unpack that question a little bit more, what does resurrection specifically have to do with the church's message or the church's mission or the church's worship? Or what does resurrection have to do with being the community of Jesus, the kind of community that the church is, or the kind of people 
that we are becoming in Christ. Or if you want to unpack it further, what does resurrection have to do with our relationships or with our work, with our suffering and our hope, with our longings and our limitations, with how we spend our money or how we receive criticism? Or what kind of guidance we seek out when we feel confused or stuck? In other words, what does Alleluia Christ is risen actually mean for us in the here and now, not only as individuals, but also as this merging and emerging community that will go by the name Resurrection? And to get that ball rolling today, I'd like for us to begin by considering the relationship between resurrection and the church's message. As we think about these readings that we just heard from 1 Corinthians and the Gospel of Luke, what is the message that Jesus, the risen Jesus, has entrusted to his church on earth? And what does resurrection have to do with that message? And the first thing I think we see as we consider these texts and others in the New Testament, is that the message of the church is most basically news. Breaking news that comes from Jesus, that is about Jesus, and that has major implications for our lives and for the world. This word gospel, you know, which is used right here in the first verse that we read from Paul, uh, that word gospel, it's, that's become commonplace in the Christian vernacular or even in our world's vernacular, right? As a way of referring to the church's message. And that word means and has always meant good news. That's how Paul begins his, late, his letter, right? Or this section of his letter. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which in turn you received, in which you stand, through which you are also being saved. So what is the good news? Well, Paul goes on, right? And he names these things that he calls thing, matters of first importance, which he received and passed on, namely that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to a bunch of people, including the best-known leaders of the church at that time, but also more than 500 others who, in Paul's, at the time Paul's writing, many of whom were still alive some 20 years or so after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. So in other words, I think the vision Paul's giving us in this section of the letters, this good news that he's saying he received and has passed on, is most basically news about something that happened to Jesus, Right? that he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised. And this might sound really, really, really elementary to camp out on this at such length, but here's why I make the point. The fact that the main message of the church is news gets so easily lost, right? The fundamental character of the message entrusted to the church is not first and foremost a message about religious beliefs or biblical principles, nor is it basically about ethics or issues, nor is it most fundamentally about where your soul goes when you die. Not that those things aren't important, not that it doesn't speak to all of those things. 
It's just that every one of those things is subordinated to this central claim of the church that truly, something truly significant and world-changing happened to Jesus. And then through him is happening to the world. And there's so much more that the church can and must say as we reflect on this great mystery of Jesus's death and resurrection, right? The mystery of this groundbreaking news. But I think it's critically important if we are to live into our identity and calling as the resurrection church, that we never confuse our attempts to explain and apply this news with the good news itself. Nor can we ever allow one particular implication or benefit of the good news, however important and beautiful it may be, to eclipse the story itself, the story of Jesus that with the Apostle Paul, we receive, stand in, and by which we're being saved. Okay, so the, this message of the Resurrection Church, it's news. It's from Jesus. It's about Jesus. It has huge implications for the world. Secondly, though, I want us to see it's a message of new creation. It's a message about a holy new work that God is doing in the world. This resurrection event that happened in the life of Jesus, the Apostle Paul wants us to see in this passage, wants his readers to see, is that what happened to Jesus is not an isolated, bizarre event. So that's how it feels to us when we first encounter it, right? Resurrection is a weird thing. And it is a weird thing to believe in, right? Can we just admit that? We are a church that confesses God raised up a dead man and that that changes everything. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to see as we consider this incredible mystery is that this is not a one-off and it's actually not even bizarre. It's the new normal of God that has burst into the world. It's the most normal thing in the cosmos. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, one of his primary concerns is to help them understand how Jesus' resurrection is connected to God's plan for the future of the whole world, which is this debate that they're having around the resurrection of the dead as a larger concept. Now, we have our own issues in believing in resurrection because we are enlightenment people, right? We, uh, we, we, we like to think that we are very, very capable of explaining the way things are with the tools that we have at hand and our intellectual capacities to understand and explain things. And we have lots of reasons to be confident in those abilities, but we do not have reasons to be ultimately confident in them because we always, in every generation, encounter new things that we don't understand. But of course, believing in resurrection is not just a problem for us moderns. As we've seen, I think as Tuck reflected on this past week too, on Easter Sunday, believing in resurrection wasn't like a normal thing for the ancients either. It's not like dead people were rising around them. That was weird to believe back then as well. It was actually an ongoing debate uh, in religious sects and factions of that day. It was, it was its own hot button issue, so to speak. But the issue in the church in Corinth doesn't appear to be that they're not believing in the resurrection of Jesus. The issue in Corinth that the Apostle Paul seems to be speaking into is that they are not sufficiently apprehending how that belief, that reception of the news that Christ is risen, 
touches all the other aspects of their life together as the church. How the resurrection of Jesus is connected to their own future and how the resurrection of Jesus is connected to their own present life. And so Paul is writing this this letter and he's essentially speaking into this issue of a divided church that's gathering around different individuals that they've esteemed as I'm with this person, right? Or I'm with that person. Or we're in this camp, or we're in this camp. And he's writing this whole letter to address divisions in the church and to address their obsession with status and all of these other worldly ways that they're organizing their life together. And he's saying, no, the resurrection of Jesus undermines all of those worldly ways that you are seeking to order your lives in the church and in the world. And so he draws their attention to this issue of how Jesus's resurrection is connected to this larger matter of the resurrection of the dead. And he says, what is, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead if you're saying there is a resurrection of Jesus? And he goes into this whole section here where he begins to unpack what does it mean if there were no resurrection of the dead? And he says, for one, it means Christ is not raised, right? And secondly, it means that our preaching and your faith are in vain. And thirdly, he says, it means that we're all liars. We're all misrepresenting God, those of us who are here proclaiming resurrection. It means that our faith is futile. It means that we're still in our sins. It means that all who have died are gonna stay dead forever. And it means that we, believers in the resurrection, are the most to be pitied. Or maybe we, the apostles, as Paul is speaking on behalf of that group that gave so dearly of their own lives to proclaim and show forth this good news to the world that they, who banked everything on the reality of resurrection, are most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then our spiritual account is bankrupt, Paul says, in effect. Because the resurrection of Jesus has everything to do with everything. All that God has been doing and all that God has promised for the future hinges on this central act of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the church's message, this good news that comes from Jesus and that is about Jesus, it also is good news that applies to everything. And this applying to everything is how Jesus himself spoke and taught about the good news, right? In his own years of ministry leading up to his death and resurrection, Jesus spoke about the good news in terms of the kingdom or the reign of God. And he always described it in terms of this like holistic political world order that would be established not by coercive force, the way our political orders are often established, but would be established by liberating love. And it would be characterized not by the injustice and power imbalance that characterize every earthly kingdom that we know of, but it would be characterized by justice and peace and life and health and the abundance of resources for all. And so this message, this good news that Jesus has entrusted to the church, it actually is a political message that doesn't shy away from real world issues. But what it is not is a partisan message that conforms to any agenda of any worldly party of any government on earth. 
The resurrection message of the church, it doesn't and it can't fit into any pre-existing box or any pre-existing agenda or party platform or life philosophy. It can only fit at the center because of what it is. It is a new thing in the midst of the old. It is new creation bursting forth in the midst of a world that is decaying and dying. It is the new thing God is doing. And that new thing can't be brought in and contained within the old. It can only erupt in the midst of it and bring transformation to everything else. And so I think it's very important as we consider what does it mean for us to be the resurrection church? What does it mean for us to steward the resurrection message that Jesus has given us? We have to reckon with the fact that Jesus cannot fit at any place in our lives other than the very center because of who he is. If you try to like get a little bit of Jesus and work him in toward the edges of your lives to see maybe this will be a nice ornament on your life, the only way to do that is to diminish the real Jesus and to dismiss his real claims, to try to make him fit in a thing that you're not open to seeing transformed by the reality of a crucified and risen savior who has brought the new creation into the midst of the old. There's no tidy way to fit Jesus into the edges of our lives. He only goes at the middle. And when he goes at the middle, everything else begins to shine forth in a brand new light. Some is illuminated and expanded. Others is challenged. Others are challenged and done away with. But he only goes at the center. And so to steward faithfully this resurrection message of the church, it means we can never become a partisan church, right? We just can't. We can never become the Republican church or the Democrat church or the socialist or the libertarian or the anarchist or the whatever other partisan church. Yet at the same time, to steward faithfully the resurrection message of the church will also require that we are seeking to bear witness to God's new normal of new creation in our world by the means that God has given us to seek such things, that the ends and the means of God's kingdom that are revealed to us in Jesus would become our ends and our means. That this Jesus who announced the arrival of God's kingdom of justice and peace and held forth for us a vision of what it looks like to seek the will of God in our midst. And that same Jesus who inaugurated that kingdom himself by dying and by being raised that we would listen to him and follow him and live like him and take up that same message, that same vision and the same means of self-sacrificial love and dependence upon God that have burst forth in resurrection victory. So for us to be stewards of the resurrection message will not allow us to either stay out of politics or play the partisan game. Neither is gonna be an option for the resurrection church. And so we should expect as we work out together what it looks like to seek God's new normal in our midst, we're probably all gonna be challenged and affirmed at different times. And sometimes every single one of us is probably gonna get upset or offended, sometimes deeply comforted or even liberated. But it will always be for the purpose 
of drawing us into deeper participation with Jesus and what he's doing in the world. Thirdly, this resurrection message of the church, it's from Jesus and it's about Jesus and it radically transforms what we do with the Bible. Look at the passage from Luke 24. This is a remarkable moment where we see the risen Jesus actually doing something transformative in Bible study. He teaches his, he teaches his disciples how to reread the whole thing toward him. But he doesn't stop there. Luke tells us he actually enabled his disciples to do it. Listen to what Jesus says, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms, that's shorthand for the whole of the Hebrew Bible or what we would call the Old Testament. And then Luke writes, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and die, suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So when Jesus opened the scriptures and he opened their minds to read it, which verses do you think he was pointing to? Like, where do you go in the Old Testament to find that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise on the third day? You'd be really hard pressed to like find the verses that you would proof text that with. What Jesus is doing is he's walking them back through the whole of the story and showing them that the whole of the story unfolds to him, that the whole thing, the whole time has been building forth, swelling to a crescendo that would meet its ultimate climax in Jesus himself, God in person, in the very world in which we live, to be one of us, to die with us, to rise so that we may rise with him. And that this good news would go forth proclaiming that this is what God has done and that this wide open invitation to repentance and forgiveness and resurrection would break forth into the world. It's an unbelievable thing that Jesus does with his disciples. And then he says, and as you go forth to share this message, you're not gonna do it alone, but you'll be clothed with power from on high. That the help that Jesus provides to his people doesn't stop with these disciples in this moment, in this early stage, but that the help continues because the helper is gonna come. Jesus is gonna send his spirit who will continue to enliven us with the very life of God and open our minds and open our hearts and lead us forward the spirit of truth, carrying us into all truth. So here's the takeaway, I think, for us. Biblical principles are never gonna get us to Jesus. It's actually the other way around. Jesus is going to take us into the principles in the Bible that conform to the Christ-like life and what God is doing in the world. Jesus is the one who carries us into the scriptures in such a way that we begin to read the whole thing toward him and begin to understand every piece in light of the whole that has found its great goal and fulfillment in him, our crucified and risen Christ. He becomes the key to understanding the scriptures, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that the scriptures are not important. 
Because what does Jesus do? He opens them. Yet he leads his people into a deep, robust engagement with the scriptures, showing us how they create the context for understanding him, even as he leads us in knowing the will of God, the discernment of God that is available to us in God's word. So this resurrection message is going going to involve both a deep dependence on Jesus and a commitment to read the scriptures toward him, yet also depending upon Jesus for our wisdom. Fourthly, this is a message about grace. The resurrection message of the church is a profoundly grace-shaped message. As I mentioned before, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians into a status-obsessed church, okay? These are people who are competing with one another, who are understanding their place at the table in light of who they are, what they have, what they've done, in competition with one another. Yet here's a message about raising the dead. And one of the pieces that Paul is latching on here that the church needs to understand is that God acts graciously toward the lowest and the least, toward those absolutely unable to meet God halfway in some sort of reciprocal arrangement. That God's grace is acted toward those who have absolutely no power at all to contribute anything to the whole arrangement. Even the dead who by definition are the lowest and least, least able to do anything at all. And he makes this the culmination of the argument he's been making all along around the divisions in the church and the status battle that he's engaging. And he offers himself as as the example here. And he says, look, I'm the least of the apostles. You wanna play a status game? I'm at the bottom of the barrel. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me has not been in vain. As we steward the message, this resurrection message of the church, we're stewarding a message of grace. We're inhabiting a message of grace. We're giving to the world a message of grace. Not a message of how to be the right people and not the wrong people. Not a message of how to be on the right side and not the wrong side of a particular issue. But a message of grace in which God will look with favor and life-giving power upon the lowest and the least. And that becomes a metaphor throughout all of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul will frequently talk about God acting upon those who were dead. You who were dead, he says, to people who are alive and reading his letter. You who were dead in your trespasses, God has made you alive together with Christ. And this raising from the dead becomes this way of our, own, our understanding of ourselves, of who we are in relation to God, what God is like, and what God is doing in our midst. And so as we think about what it means to live into our resurrection message, I think we have to see that this kind of message of grace, it's like the opposite of virtue signaling. It's the opposite of trolling people. It's the opposite of gossiping about those people, whoever they might be, right? Or defending our own legitimacy as the right kind of people or worse, the right kind of Christians. It's the opposite of congratulating ourselves for getting it right while simultaneously condemning others for missing it. The message of grace is the message that says that I am here because only of the invitation of Jesus. And that's why you're here too that God has made us family by his grace. And that as we receive him, so we receive one another. Which is not to say that there's no room for naming evil as evil. We have to do that. Of 
course. But it profoundly reorients us to that work. It calls us first to discern and repent of the evil in and among ourselves, that log in our own eye, and then to extend to others in their flawed existence the same kind of grace God extends toward us. And Paul models this for us here. This message we see is also, Luke tells us, a message for all the nations of the earth. What it means to be the resurrection church is to recognize that the message we carry is a message for everyone, which is not to say it's like a colonizing kind of message where Jesus calls us to go make other people be like us, right? But it is a transformative message in which we recognize that Jesus meets us in our cultural moment and others in their cultural moment and location and invites all of us to find ourselves in him, to be remade as this new humanity in him. As Christina Cleveland, a social psychologist, reflects on the importance of common identity, she says that when we become, when they become we, we naturally like them a whole lot more. When they become we, we naturally like them a whole lot more. And when they become we, we're more open to receiving helpful criticism from them. And when they become we, we forgive them more easily and are less likely to expect them to experience collective guilt. And when they become we, we treat them and they treat us a little better or a lot better. And what God has done in Jesus, this is the resurrection message that we steward. What God has done in Jesus is he's taken all the thems and he's made us all a we in Christ, one new humanity in him. Finally, this message is a message about love. At the end of the day, the message of resurrection is a message that the love of God wins out over every enemy that would stand in its way of shaping the way life happens in this world. Every enemy, every obstacle, even death itself is undone by the love and power of God. St. Augustine defines a people as a gathered multitude of rational beings united by agreeing to share what they love. And he says, the better the things, the better the people. The worse the things, the worse their agreement to share them. And the message that the church has stewarded for 2,000 years is simply that Christ himself is the supreme object of our love. He's the best. He's the most liberating. He's the most beautiful. He's the most compelling. He's the one most worthy of loving because he's the one in whom God has revealed the love that frees the world. And so as the church, as the resurrection church, we gather together around Jesus to share our love of him, both a love given and a love received. And we begin to find ourselves in him living into the identity of God's beloved. Do you know that that's who you are? You are God's beloved child because you belong to God's beloved son who died, who was raised and who lives now and you are joined to him And his resurrection life is yours. And that's the message we steward. That's the identity we have as a gift. And that's the calling we inhabit as the resurrection church. And just to close, I'll share these words from Henry Nouwen that I've been sitting with this week about what it means to be God's beloved in a world that is hard. 
because I think this is profoundly instructive for us as we live into this identity and calling as the resurrection church, that we recognize that it is to live into our identity and calling as the beloved. And now one says this, as the beloved, I can confront, console, admonish, and encourage without fear of rejection or need for affirmation. As the beloved, I can suffer persecution without desire for revenge and receive praise without using it as proof of my own goodness. Let that wash over you. Can you imagine like believing that so deeply that that was your experience of life in the world? Can you imagine resting in that identity so deeply as God's beloved that you would be truly liberated to live into the world like that? And can you imagine the fruitfulness of your life if that were true of you or me? The fruitfulness of our collective life as a church if this were true of us? That freedom to be fully present in our own real circumstances without feeling the need to escape or to win or defend or perform or grasp or to be needed or to control the outcome or to prove anything to anyone but simply to love and to be. That's the vision. That's the calling. And that's the message that we steward. And my prayer for us as we grow up into our name, Resurrection Philadelphia, is that this is what our life would be like. That this is the kind of message we would live in and preach, not only with our lips, but with our lives. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.